Here's Pastor Steve Converse to begin today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. You know, I want you to understand that false teaching from within the church, when you have a body of believers, false teaching from within the church is much more dangerous than persecution from without the church. From Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City, hello and welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. Knowing your salvation, this is a series we're beginning today here in 2 Peter. So look at this marvelous book, helping us to understand the salvation that we have, helping us to guard and keep and entrust that salvation as well. We begin our time together today with a look at the author of this book and a bit of background to see where we're headed for the next few weeks here on Graceful Truth. Please join us for a very encouraging look at God's Word. 2 Peter chapter 1 is where we start with this edition of Graceful Truth Now, Pastor Steve Converse. 2 Peter, we want to just remind ourselves the the background and the, the setting here of this book. It was the Christians to whom Peter wrote were mainly, mostly Gentiles. Second Peter was written to the same group of people as First Peter because he says in chapter 3, verse 1 of Second Peter, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. So whoever he wrote First Peter to is the sec- same group that he wrote Second Peter to. And we know who he wrote First Peter to. He said, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion of the Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood. That's 1 Peter 1.1. So we know who the audience is. A little bit about the background that 1 Peter was written mostly to suffering Christians, and it was meant to encourage them in their time of suffering. 2 Peter, however, is written in a whole different light. It was written to expose the false teachers of their day. It was really written to combat all the, the beliefs and the activities that were taking place among certain heretical teachers of Peter's day, And those preachers who were heretical during Peter's day really uh, threatened, you might say, the life of the church and the well-being and the spiritual being of new believers. And so Peter was very much concerned about some of this errant teaching that was going around. He doesn't pull any punches in this book. If you've read through the book, he makes his opinion of these guys very clear. He calls them things like useless as dried up springs of water. He compares their teaching to a dog returning to vomit. Okay, Uh, he doesn't really uh, provide any comfort for these people at all. Uh, Very little grace is extended to these false heretical teachers. And we saw that the, the letter had three primary purposes. The first one was to alert these readers to the dangers of false teachings. And then secondly, to remind the readers about their personal faith, that it shouldn't remain uh, static, that our faith is something that's active. It should be growing each day. And then third thing was to encourage believers in their faith that they should be expecting the Lord Jesus Christ to return one day. This is not necessarily speaking here about these false teachers in a future tense. These were false teachers that actually infiltrated their church as they knew it in their time. And, you know, we have that same situation today in our Christian churches today. There's, there's certain doctrines and certain teachers that infiltrate churches and try to uh, persuade people to follow their teachings, even though they're false, they're not biblical, and it's taken on its own whole movement. They were already kind of 
enduring some of this errant teaching. And so Peter is writing to them, and he doesn't want to coddle them in any way. He wants them to know very boldly that they need to be on the alert uh, for these people. And it doesn't really, if you look through the book, it doesn't really expose their teachings. It doesn't say, here's what their teachings uh, are, and this is wrong. He doesn't do that. What's kind of interesting is that Peter, rather than deal with the doctrine that they're talking about, whatever it might be, their errant doctrines, he doesn't pull a doctrine up and say, oh, they're teaching that Jesus isn't God, or they're, they're teaching this, or they're teaching that, there's no resurrection. He doesn't really focus on their teachings. He focuses more, you might say, on who they are, what their personality is like, what an errant teacher, what a false teacher looks like, what their characteristics are like. Because the one thing that you'll, you'll understand is that even though the teachings may change, everybody's always coming up with a new doctrine. If you've ever noticed this, uh, people are always, oh, I, you know, the Lord showed me this new thing in the Word, and, and they have a whole following behind their new found doctrine or whatever it might be. Um, they write books on it. They do all kinds of things. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, this is the truth that we have from God. There's no new truth. This is what he gave us. So beware of anybody that says, oh, I have a new truth from the Lord, or thus saith the Lord. Uh, we believe the canon of Scripture is closed. Therefore, if God's going to reveal anything to our hearts and to our lives, he's going to do it through the word of God, through verses or through the spirit bringing back verses to our remembrance. He's not going to give you some new truth. And so we see here that this false teaching kind of invaded their church. And the one thing he wants them to understand is even though the teachings may change, people always come up with new stuff. Their characteristics don't. And if you look at the characteristics of a false teacher, you can spot them a mile off. doesn't matter what's coming out of their mouth. Even though you may not understand exactly what their teachings are, you can focus in on the the characteristics and you can spot somebody who is trying to lead people astray. And so his goal here is to expose these false teachers, not so much their doctrines, but who they are specifically, what kind of people make up a false teacher. And he helps us do that. One of the key words in the book of 2 Peter is knowledge or know to know. The outline basically for Second Peter could be, you could say, know your salvation, know your scriptures, know your adv- adversaries, know your prophecy, or know your sanctification. And so it, it's kind of important that we, we understand that Peter wants them to know something. You know, when I run into believers who are just kind of, you know, have you ever run into a Christian who's just, there's no joy in their life? nothing there. It's just, you know, oh, woe is me. And they're just down in the mouth and they're constantly, you know, I'm just suffering for Jesus. And there's no joy at all in their life. And you wonder what's going on there. You know, why, why are they that way? And what I've found is a lot of times when believers don't have the proper knowledge of who God is and what God has done in their life, they can't have that kind of joy that God promises in his word. That word knowledge is, is very prominent in the first three chapters here. It's, it's throughout the book here. It's, it's, it's just, you know, it appears, I think, 16 times over and over and over again. And six of those times, it's the, the word in the, the, the Greek, basically, epignosko, which means not just knowledge, but almost it, it intensifies the knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. It's something that you've, you know, you you can really say that you know without a doubt, personally. And so what Peter's saying is if you have that kind of knowledge about certain things, you're going to be protected in your Christian growth, in your Christian faith, from all these errant doctrines that are out there. You're going to be able to be discerning. 
You're going to be able to be thoughtful and analytical and evaluate, well, that, that person's saying that, but where does that line up with the Word of God? But you have to know what the Word of God says. You have to know what the Word of God says about your salvation. You have to know what the Word of God says about itself, about the Scriptures. You have to know definitely what the Word of God says about these false teachers. And you also have to know what the Word of God says about your sanctification. What is your Christian life supposed to look like? And if you know all those things, then that will help you to kind of have that gird of protection, that that helmet of salvation. Jesus Christ and the knowledge of him in our salvation is our first line of defense, you might say. When you think of Satan out there, he's wielding this sword of false doctrine. He's trying to get you to follow him, and he wants to strike that blow against you. And the only thing that insulates you from his blows is the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's a personal knowledge that we have. This isn't something that's religious in any way. We know God through the Lord Jesus Christ as believers, just like we know our wife, just like we know our neighbor, just like we know other family members. He's a person. We relate to him personally. And so the, the theme here of Second Peter is really, if you know the one who gives you the ability to discern truth from error, then you'll be able to see what's right and what's wrong. It's all about really knowing who Christ is, knowing Jesus personally. And that's kind of the emphasis of the entire book. And if you know that, you're going to be able to experience more of the Christian life in its fullness. First Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion. We went through that when we went through First Peter. Talks about the fiery persecution that's about to come to the saints in that book. But here in Second Peter, Satan is this, he's kind of a serpent seeking to deceive. And, and that's what he is pictured as. You know, I want you to understand that false teaching from within the church, when you have a body of believers, false teaching from within the church is much more dangerous than persecution from without the church. People say, well, do you think there'll be a day when the church will be persecuted in America? Oh, sure there will be. But you know what? I think that the church will prosper in that situation as it does all over the world. Persecution always kind of serves as a a cathartic cleansing and strengthening of the church. It's kind of like going on a special diet and cleaning your system out, you know. Do that once in a while. You drink this weird stuff and that's all you drink. And, you know, you do it for a couple days and literally it just cleans everything out. You know, your pores, everything. You can't eat anything during that time. And, you know, it's just a, it's kind of a, a cathartic thing. The first couple of days of that is tough. You know, you, man, your stomach's growling. And after day two or three, you're feeling okay. You could go on for another week if you had to. That's kind of what persecution does for the church. It cleanses it out. It cleans it out. It, it helps it become stronger. But to the opposite of that, false teaching from within the church weakens the church. And it really ruins its testimony because people look at, the, the body of believers, oh, you look at them, they're arguing, you know, the church split, this and that. And it just ruins the testimony that that church may have for Christ in the community in which they live. And the only weapon really to fight against false teaching and the devil's lies is the word of God. And so it comes back down to that word knowledge, knowing what God wants us to know. And so the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at what it means to know him, to know the Savior, to know Christ how we can grow in our relationship with him, how we can experience this transformed life that he saved us to. Salvation isn't a, so much a religious experience, beloved. It's a personal experience. One comes to faith to know Christ through faith. It, it's so important to understand that Christ wants to know us. 
in a very real way. Over in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3, here's what Jesus says about knowing him. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. It's Jesus speaking. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it's very important that we understand who Christ is. It's very important that we understand that God desires us to have a relationship with him. It isn't isn't some static kind of relationship where he's up in heaven and we're down here and never the two shall meet till we go to glory. That's not the kind of God we serve. We serve a God that says, no, I want to be intimately acquainted with you. I already am, but I want to be intimately involved in your life in every step of the, the process. And the mistake we make sometimes is we forget that. Because we don't see God every day, visibly. Maybe we look at creation and we see the handiwork that he's done for us and we're reminded of him. But God isn't in the business of appearing to people today. So as a result, you know, out of sight, out of mind. That's what happens. And so we need to be reminded that 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 shouldn't happen. Uh, It's not simply good enough to know about Christ. We must know him personally. Philippians 3.10 says this, that I may know him right? And the power of his resurrection and that I may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. See, it's one thing to know that, oh yeah, Jesus and church and all that stuff, but it's another thing to know him in a personal way, in an intimate way. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he gives us his righteousness. We don't have a righteousness of our own. He gives us his. And he becomes our savior. It's a personal transaction. It's a a personal experience that you go through. It's a time when you can actually be transformed. The Bible says that you're ushered out of the, 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 the darkness and into the light. He's taken your hard, stony heart and he's made it a heart of flesh. He's transformed you. That's what we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. I'm reminded of a story of Joey Barrow, who was a young teenager. And when he went to school, his classmates would always label him the, you know, the, the sissy. You know, he was kind of a meek kid. And at 18, while other kids were out playing sports and doing other stuff, he was taking violin lessons. <laughs> So you can just see where this is going. And one day they called him sissy one too many times. And Joey just lost his temper and he smashed the boy who made fun of him. Smacked him right in the head with his violin. That didn't help. I mean, you know, the stories abounded after that incident. Oh, yeah, what are you going to hit me with your violin again? Uh, It was just kind of everybody made fun of this kid everywhere he went. Well, one boy who observed this didn't laugh, the story says. His name was Thurston McKinney. And Thirsty McKinney was one of his classmates, didn't really know Joe that well, but he was this big strapping kind of farm kid, just strong. And he thought, you know, it's time I help this kid out. It's time he has a little more muscle on his frame so that people don't pick on him and mess with him so much. And this guy went to the gym regularly. Finally, he he asked Joey to come along. He said, come on, you know, I'll take you to the gym. I'll show you what it means to work out and you can work on your, your muscles and your body and hopefully help you out with this. And as always, Joey always had his violin with him. You know, you take a violin to a gym. That's pretty not, not that cool. Thurston finally said, look, if you want to work out with me, you're going to have to rent a locker. To rent a locker, it was 50 cents. And the only money that Joey could come up with was the money that his mom gave him each week for his violin lessons, which was 50 cents. 
So Joey borrowed some of his friend's gym trunks and uh, some old tennis shoes, and he rented this locker, put his violin in it, and went to work out with this boy named Thurston. And the first time Thurston invited Joey to spar with him, Joey clobbered him, just literally clobbered him, flattened him. And Thurston had this dazed response. He was already, this Thurston McKinney was already a Detroit Golden Gloves champion. And he looked at Joey and he said, boy, you're going to throw that violin away. (laughs) And with the money that his mother had intended to finance weekly violin lessons, Joey kept this permanent locker. And he went to the gym faithfully. In five years' time, Joey Barra would have he turned 23, and you know, he was the heavyweight champion boxing of the world. And they say little about Thurston McKinney, but he took this Joey Barrow under his wing, and Joey actually dropped his last name, Barrow, so his mother wouldn't find out that he was skipping violin lessons and taking boxing lessons. And the world knew for years who this sissy Joey Barrow was, that he had been transformed into the unbeatable They called him the Brown Bomber, Joe Lewis. Amazing story. This kid was just transformed in a matter of time because somebody took the time to do the right thing, to give him the proper knowledge, to see his body go through a transformation. Well, it's interesting. When we come to 2 Peter, we see another man here who has been truly transformed. His name is Simon Peter. We're introduced to him there in verse 1. And his transformation didn't really produce a fighter, but it's almost like it took a fighter and and turned him into a servant. It was kind of the transformation in reverse, you might say. And so dramatic, I think, was the change in, in Simon Peter's life that when he wrote this epistle, he wanted to make sure that he understood that the Christian faith was never something that was to be remain static or unchanged, that the Christian faith always had to add something. It always had to be growing. And if you're a believer here today, you should be continually experiencing change in your walk with Christ. You should be continually seeing God transform you. And Second Peter helps us to see this character and this transformation take place. And it really serves as a way of reminding us not to pursue this change simply on our own, as Joey did with a friend, but... Our transformation is a cooperative venture, you might say, between us and God. Uh, With our sincere and positive efforts to make change and and believe and have faith, God supernaturally kind of comes in and gives us the, the will and the desire and the power to do it. But it's not something you can just pull out of thin air, just like Joey couldn't become a a world class boxer just because he wanted to. He had to do hard work. There was some investment that he had to make. And see, it's, it's really grounded, our change is grounded in the unchanging character that we find in Scripture, that being Jesus Christ. Well, look at the first verse here. And we're going to kind of look at these first couple verses today. It starts off there in the ESV. It says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice that your, your Bible there has two names, Simon Peter, most likely. And, and both of those names are important. God put him in there for a reason. Simon is the Greek term. Uh, Simeon is the Hebrew term. So some translations use the Hebrew, some translations use the Greek. So whether you have Simon or Simeon, it's the same name. It's just drawn from a different language. We want to make sure that we understand what the origin of this this name is. Uh, Simeon, who was the head of the 
one of the tribes of Israel. And so he was given a name, a birth name, after that. His father named him Simon. That's where he got his first, the first section of his name. That was a very common name, by the way, in the time that it was given. It was so common that there's nine other people, basically, in the New Testament who are called Simon. And so, if he just said, Simon wrote this, well, you would ask, who, who is this guy? Which Simon? So he wanted to make sure, in, in, in very specific terms, I guess, that people knew who was writing this epistle. So he writes, Simon Peter. Peter is, is the word that Christ called him. It means rock. In, in Aramaic, it's Cephas. So that's where sometimes he's called Cephas or Peter. Same. It's all, it's all mean the same. But he wanted his full identity to be expressed here. And he wanted everyone to know that it was him who was writing this, this letter. It wasn't some other Simon. It was Simon Peter. And if you think about that name, Simon Peter, we always kind of relate to Simon. Everybody knows who Simon Peter is. The first name there, Simon, was really a, a name of dishonor. And Peter was a name of honor. Because Simon was speaking of his time before Christ. Peter was his time after Christ, after he was introduced to Christ. The Holy Spirit had him write down both names. I mean, Jesus renamed him Peter. you think that you would use that name. But no, he uses the word Simon Peter. And it's almost like he's telling us, look, I'm just like you. You know, I got an old, old history too that sometimes I have to deal with. And I, I'm new in Christ as well. And you, it's funny when you see Jesus addressing Peter, sometimes he doesn't address him as Peter, right? He addresses him as Simon. And what's the reason behind that is because he's saying, to look, you know, in John 21, for example, he calls him Simon three times. And he, really, he's telling Peter, look, you're not acting like Peter, pal. You're acting like your old self. You're acting like Simon. Stop it. So this combination of Simon-Peter occurs quite a bit when we run into this designation. And a lot of times in our own lives, we struggle with the same thing, don't we? I mean, it's not like we get saved at one point in time, we come to Christ, and from then on we live perfect Christian lives. No. On occasion, you know what? We fall into sin. On occasion, we start living like our old self. And God has to correct that in our lives. But it's, it's almost as if Peter's saying, hey, you know, I just want you to identify with me just to know that I'm not perfect. Even though, you know, I was there with Jesus, even though uh, I did a lot of things and performed a lot of miracles, I'm stuck with both names. And until we're glorified and in his presence, frankly, so are we. Uh, I get real irritated with Christians that look down their, their righteous noses at other believers almost to say as if, well, you know, I used to be like that until I matured in the faith and... It's like, give me a break. Who do you think you are? The, the Bible says just the opposite. You know, except by the grace of God, there go I. See, when we come to our Christian walks, we have no reason or even purpose for being snooty or right, self-righteous because we don't have any righteousness, right? Our righteousness comes from Christ. And so he's reminding us right here with the first two words. You know what? Remember, you were, you were a person that was transformed. You were a person who was saved. Just like Peter came from Simon, he was transformed by God's Christ's glorious power. Everyone who comes to Christ should experience that transformation. And if there is no transformation, there's no change. And there's no change, there's no salvation. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. 
It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.